I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent. Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent, and our special guest, Elaine Moore, deputy editor of FT Money. This week, we'll take a look at the fallout from the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards report into HBOS, as the former chief executive, Sir James Crosby, asks for his knighthood to be removed. We'll discuss the latest in the LIBOR-related rate-rigging scandal, as the probe expands around the world. And we'll also take a look at new banking entrants in the UK as the post office announces plans to offer current accounts. First, though, to the HBOS story. This has been rumbling on now for a couple of weeks in the wake of the Parliamentary Commission's report into HBOS, which was pretty damning. That came about 10 days ago. Jenny, you've been following the the ramifications of this story. I remember talking to Andrew Tyre, the chairman of the commission. He talked about wanting to be constructive and not vindictive with his report. But actually, it's turned out to be something of a witch hunt, not obviously by the commission itself, but politicians and the media have really picked up on this. And arguably, Sir James Crosby has been hounded into a corner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very a very important initial point to make that the Commission made no direct recommendation for anyone to lose jobs or titles or things like that. They were looking to learn the lessons from HBOS, which of course was taken over by Lloyds in 2008. But they did name three former executives at the bank, Lord Stevenson, the former chairman, Andy Hornby and James Crosby, the former chief executives, as being the architects of the uh, strategy that you know set HBOS on the course to disaster. So, yeah, I mean, the attention was very much focused on Crosby. He was the chief executive until around 2006, and he was seen as the man who was in the driving seat when the the seeds of failure were really set at HBOS, which was the bank's undoing a couple of years later, so a massive expansion in risky lending. What about anybody else here? We talked about Sir James Crosby asking, obviously under pressure, for his knighthood to be taken away and to have his pension reduced, basically preempting calls for a repeat of, of regulators doing that, as they did with Fred Goodwin at RBS. But what about others? Andy Hornby took over as chief executive from Sir James Crosby in, I think it was 2006. Also, the chairman was particularly criticised by the commission's report, Lord Stevenson. They seem to be off the hook or what's happening? Not quite. It, it's unclear at the present moment. I mean, James Crosby differs from the other two in, in two key respects. The first is that Lord Stevenson didn't actually receive his title for services to the financial industry. And although he was roundly lambasted in the uh, parliamentarian's report, calling him delusional for not facing the, the reasons why HBOS failed, he is sort of, for various reasons, in a slightly different category. Andy Hornby is currently chief executive of Coral, the bookmaking arm of Gala Coral. But 
that the company has has come out in a round defence of him and say he's doing a great job and he is obviously on a far smaller pension than James Crosby so the heat is sort of off them although they have obviously come into the public eye quite a lot over the past week. Two other names we've seen have been Mike Ellis the former finance director now at Skipton Building Society and again you know that institution has come out in defence of him and critically he wasn't actually named in the commission's report and he wasn't at HBOS for some of the particularly bad years and finally another name John Griffith Jones he was uh, had various senior roles at KPMG at a time when they were HBOS's auditor and he's now chairman of the new regulator the FCA. Brooke do you think that that's likely to be the end of it then? It does seem to have been particularly heated the pursuit of James Crosby but is there a line being drawn with that do you think? It's hard to tell. I mean, with Griffith Jones, for example, the FCA has come out very strongly saying he, there's nothing wrong with him. And it should be noted that the report from the commission, again, did not bring anything up about the auditors. KPMG is mentioned only as a source of information. There's no criticism made of them. And of course, as the FCA keeps pointing out, they don't regulate auditors. The Financial Reporting Council does. So if somebody has a problem with HBOS or Mr. Griffith Jones, it has nothing to do with them from their point of view. In terms of Mike Ellis, he's also sort of interesting. He testified at the Banking Standards Commission, and it was not a particularly feisty session. Very different from Stevenson and Crosby, who were absolutely attacked in front of the commission and might have known this was coming. Mr. Ellis has an interesting position in that he left HBOS in 2004 and returned in 2007 when things were already a complete disaster. It was post-Northern Rock's collapse. So he has been able to argue that you know it wasn't his fault. And when he got there, the second time, he tried to pull it back together. I get the sense that it may die down a bit. So far, there hasn't been a giant pickup of the calls for either Mr. Griffith Jones or Mr. Ellis to be forced out or anything. Well, we'll monitor that one, obviously, going forward. Thank you. The second topic for the day is the still spreading rate rigging scandal. Daniel, you've been monitoring this closely. Can you bring us up to date on what the latest of various developments over the past week or so? One thing that I've been looking into last week is that Royal Bank of Scotland in Japan has been sanctioned by the Financial Services Agency in the country for its role in the rate rigging scandal, particularly with respect to yen LIBOR submissions. And basically what the FSA in Japan did was to give RBS a so-called business improvement order, which means basically they've told them, your internal controls and compliance weren't working properly. You should have spotted this much earlier. These attempts by traders to rig this interest rate or interbank lending rate. And you need to basically clean up your compliance and, and improve it. And this is obviously, you know, it isn't a massive sanction, like as in a big fine that they have to pay, but it's a big image blow for them in Japan. And it, it triggered actually the departure of the head of the RBS securities unit in Japan. That's not the only development in this whole story, Brooke. In the US, we've had the CFTC subpoena ICAP, I think, the interdealer broker. That's right, along with a bunch of banks. This has to do, interestingly, this is the first time we've moved out of interbank lending rates to another benchmark. It's ISDAFIX, which is very closely related. It is essentially the rate at which you price interest rate swaps. And it is set in a very similar fashion where a bunch of banks submit bids at 11 o'clock in the morning and they then you know throw some out, create an average, and it's the pricing. Because it's simply subpoenas and there are no allegations, we don't really know exactly what they're looking at. We do know, however, that Martin Wheatley, who runs the FCA here, expressed concerns about ISDAFIX or that people had been expressing concerns to him about ISDAFIX as long ago as last summer. And it's pretty clear that 
there are concerns that something similar happened. The allegations that they are investigating, whether it's true, and we, again, we don't know, are whether banks dressed up what's called the 19901 page, where they display their rates so that it would fix the results. So they would then make money on their swaps, either pricing their own books or in selling them to somebody. Okay. So the whole gamut of things, obviously, lots of tentacles of this, various lines of these inquiries. Are, are there more things going to emerge in the next few weeks, Daniel, do you think? I mean, I think what both developments from last week show, really, is that the regulatory cleanup and the punishments for, for all those alleged manipulation has only just started, really. I mean, we've we've seen three global settlements so far, UBS, Barclays, and RBS. But even for those banks things aren't over yet, partly because they've only settled with regulators in Europe and the US. And, you know, there are further ongoing investigations in Asia and other places, but also because the investigations are spreading to other areas of finance. And of course, and there's going to be potential private sector investor action as well. As well, yeah. And on, on LIBOR itself, I think that the next steps are going to be that we're going to see this year, you know, a few more settlements with US and UK regulators. I mean, it's sort of widely expected now that Rabobank, a Dutch bank, might be the next one to settle as early as the end of this month or, you know, maybe in the next few months, the latest. Okay. Our third topic for today is news that the UK's post office is to offer current accounts. Britain's high street banks are basically set to face a new competitor as the post office has announced plans to offer current accounts in its nearly 12,000 branches. Elaine, you've been following this story. Is it as dramatic as it sounds? I have. So this news broke last week and the post office hasn't really given very many details on exactly what will be offered. So we don't know what form the current accounts will take, whether, like M&S, they're going to charge for them. All we know is is that the plan is in motion and that a few branches will offer current accounts to begin with and that hopefully by the end of 2014, every branch customers will be able to go into and open a current account. As you said, it's nearly 12,000 branches across the UK, which is more than all other UK banks combined, which sounds like it's an enormous competitor to the rest of the industry. But actually, it's not quite as impressive as it sounds. There's a number of reasons. First off, customers just don't like changing their current account. It requires an incentive. And even when there's an incentive, even when there's £100 on offer, the numbers who do it are still really, really small. It's going to get a little bit faster later on this year, but it's still seven days. It's a hassle. People don't like doing it. The other reason is, is that it's not going to suddenly become 12,000 proper bank branches with bank managers and you know all that kind of setup. It's still going to be these small post offices inside a village hall or inside a newsagent or something. So it's not quite the same as having a new bank in the UK with 12,000 branches. Brooke, as Elaine says, that's maybe not going to shake up the high street banking scene. What do you think, amid all the talk among politicians of, of the need for greater competition on the high street, what do you think is going to shake things up? I think there are a couple things going on right now that really could have a big impact. One is this work by the PRA and the FCA, which are the new regulators, saying they're going to speed applications for new banks and make it easier for new banks to open. Another is if anybody picks up on Andy Haldane's idea that we need you know, centralized infrastructure that's easier to plug in and plug out of. And that is possibly going to come because the Payments Council is losing its domination over processing of payments. There's going to be government regulation. And presumably, if they find things in the way the Payments Council currently processes checks and debit cards and all that stuff that are keeping out banks, they may force the industry to make it more welcoming to new people. The final thing that's going to make a huge difference, I think, is technology. 
People are using cards, prepaid cards, and phones to make payments. This isn't current accounts, but this is for people who need a place for money to go into and money to go out of. And particularly at the lower end of the scale, where you don't really have enough money to qualify for a current account, the idea of a prepaid debit card that you could load with your government benefits or you could load with your very small salary or hourly wages and then go out and spend is a really, really attractive one. And in that arena... I think people who at the moment can't get a bank to pay any attention to them may find it very attractive. And certainly that echoes what you hear from the banks that actually their biggest concern in terms of competition is likely to come from non-banks doing non-banky type things. Elaine, do you agree with Brooke's point? I do. I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think that this point of the unbanked in the UK, which is enormous, in terms of the post office is quite interesting because a few years ago there was an idea that the post office could become this people's bank for people who don't have a bank account in the largest providers in the UK. That idea has been scrapped now because what's an offer from the post office comes from Bank of Ireland and they have no interest in this group. But if you have facilities such as e-payments, you know, and schools have now moved towards cashless societies where you just pay for your lunch with your fingerprint or yeah. or a card or something. There are lots and lots of areas, travel is another one, where e-payments are much, much more convenient than cash or than a debit card. Just one point to clarify there. You mentioned the Bank of Ireland's role at the post office. Obviously, they took over the banking operations of the post office in prior years, didn't they? What is the state of affairs now? What What is the Bank of Ireland's role in this new venture? Is it involved at all? Because obviously they suffered greatly through the Irish crisis. It is. So since 2004, they've been offering a variety of financial products through the post office. There was some controversy because it turned out that savings accounts, which were provided by the post office and by Bank of Ireland, were not covered by the UK's savings protection scheme. So that became an issue when the Irish economy was looking more fragile. These current accounts are offered with Bank of Ireland, which means that they manufacture the current accounts, but it's branded as post office. So, yeah, they're still involved. OK, thank you very much for that. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, Daniel, Jennifer and Elaine for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.